0: As some listeners may remember from the Forgotten Australia episode about my Titanic ancestor, in 2018 I was reunited with my biological family thanks to clues I found in electoral roll records on Ancestry.com.au. Since then I've gone a step further using Ancestry DNA to connect with a whole bunch of cousins and second cousins. I've met some of them recently and it's really changed my world. Ancestry DNA helped me make other discoveries too, because it's shown that my genetic heritage is 58% Irish. The results took me even deeper than that, revealing my ancestors came from South Leitrim, West Cavern, and bordering counties. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. Maybe you also have Irish heritage. In the lead up to this St. Patrick's Day, Ancestry is offering you the chance to delve into your background with Ancestry DNA at the special price of $89, saving you $40. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. This special offer is valid until the 17th of March 2024 and the price does not include shipping. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast contains references to suicide and sexual assault and descriptions of fatal violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's half an hour before sunrise on Monday, the 2nd of April, 1917, and in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, Mr Arthur Anderson, proprietor of the popular California boarding house, is having a very bad start to his day. At this time of the morning, his biggest concern should be that the breakfast service is about to run smoothly, that everyone has hot water for their morning baths and that the guests taking the early motor tour to Janolan Caves awoken in plenty of time to get out the door. But instead, in a first-floor wing of the California, Mr. Anderson is being told of things that went bump in the night. Guests heard screams and strange noises. One woman tells Mr. Anderson the disturbances were in the room next to hers. She says someone went out the window, using blankets tied into a rope to get down to the ground. Mr. Anderson knocks on the door to that room and calls the guest's name. There's no response. He tries again and then he tries the door, but it's locked from the inside. Mr. Anderson heads down into the backyard and into the bracing air of this brisk morning. It's still dark, but the eastern horizon is aglow with a pre-dawn halo, so there's enough light to see. Mr. Anderson's eyes turn up to the locked room's open window. Just as the woman said, two blankets have been knotted together and hang part of the way to the ground. This makeshift rope is in places smeared dark scarlet, and there are red stains on the hotel wall too. Clearly, whoever came out of that room was covered in blood. Mr. Anderson fetches a ladder. His heart has to sink lower with his every step higher. Mr. Anderson surely suspects that, once he sees inside that room, his day is going to get a lot worse. I'm Michael Adams, and welcome to the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Bloody Murder in the Blue Mountains. Parts two and three will be out soon, but you can hear them now, ad-free, if you're a Patreon supporter, or if you subscribe to Forgotten Australia Plus via Apple. Supporting or subscribing will set you back about 20 cents a day, and it helps me to get access to the research materials I need to ensure no stones left unturned when I bring you these stories. And as a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, along with exclusive bonus shows. If you use Apple, you can actually try Forgotten Australia Plus for three days with a free trial. Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. So, a big thank you to recent supporters Ian Fox and Johnny Caron. Finally, just a reminder that the first Forgotten Australia Book Club episode featuring Peter Doyle and his book Suburban Noir is coming up. I'm extending the deadline for questions just in case you're still reading and want to ask Peter a question. Get the question or questions in by the 8th of May. You can record them via speakpipe.com forward slash forgotten Australia or drop me an email at Podcast at gmail.com. Those links and more information about the book club are in your show notes. The locked room, the mountains hotel, the gathered guests, a scream in the night, and a body in the morning. It's like something out of an Agatha Christie bestseller. Except in April 1917 she was yet to have her debut novel published. In any case, what happened in Katoomba at the California wasn't the sort of mystery that any detective, real or literary, could solve by revealing the murderer to guests he'd assembled in the drawing room. That's because it wasn't a who done it or a how done it. It was a why done it. A why done it that was front-page news in Sydney and a big story all over Australia. And, more than 100 years later, the mystery remains every bit as perplexing as it was on that morning, when the proprietor of the California, Mr Arthur Anderson, came face to face with bloody murder in the Blue Mountains. Katoomba, built around a ridge 3,330 feet above sea level and dubbed the Queen City of the Hills, was in the midst of a boom in autumn 1917. In the century since the white men had first crossed the Darug and Gundungurra land that the colonists in Sydney had renamed the Blue Mountains, Katoomba had grown from a roadside inn settlement and coal mining outpost into a tourist destination that was famed for its natural beauty and for the health-giving properties of its air, water and sunshine. Originally a ritzy enclave for the elite, who'd stay in the majestic Carrington Hotel, the coming of the motor car, coupled with competition between dozens of guesthouse operators, had made Katoomba holidays affordable to the middle and working classes. The town and the wider Blue Mountains had, moreover, since 1908 become internationally famous thanks to the wonderful photographic studies done by Mr Harry Phillips. Harry, who loved the clouds that wreathed Katoomba, had set up shop in town and appointed himself as an apostle for the appeal of the place's attractions. Hundreds of thousands of his postcards and booklets had been given away or sold cheaply in the decades since he'd set up his studio. Diggers even wrote to him from the Western Front to say how prized the photographs were amongst the fellows, and Harry's pictures had even been found in German dugouts. In fact, If you could believe it, Katoomba's own Harry Phillips had been the one man who'd predicted the war long before it had broken out. See, back in 1909, he'd taken a photograph of striking clouds arrayed above the town. In these formations, Harry saw an eagle, a lion, a bear, and other animals and symbols arranged in such a way that he believed it prophesied the coming of a terrible conflict. So he'd sent his photograph. Which he called war clouds and his interpretations to the newspapers and to various leaders around the world at the time it had caused some concern had harry phillips been right well in the australian autumn of 1917 with the great war approaching its 1000th day many would have thought so yet the conflict hadn't really hurt katoomba guest houses had continued to be built and a cheap mountains holiday was hardly seen as living it up too grandly while our boys were making sacrifices over there. Besides, a visit to the mountains could be justified on the grounds of good physical, mental, emotional and spiritual health. It was good for the body to hike up and down bush tracks, and it was good for the soul to take in the majesty of nature. The scientists said that the high-altitude sunshine and the ozone-laden air was a tonic. When people were up here, they ate better and they slept deeper. It was said that Katoomba folk never actually died from ill health. Like the joke where a tourist gets talking to an old-timer who admits to being 70. 70, the visitor says. Well, you don't look it. You've probably got a lot of years left yet. How old was your father when he died? Died? The old-timer sputters. Father's not dead. He's inside putting grandfather to bed. In 1917, Katoomba was substantial, its permanent population approaching 4,000, but it wasn't yet fully subdivided and cleared. So, very close to the town, there were paddocks and patches of scrub that abounded with profusions of colourful wildflowers. Rock lilies and native orchids fringed cliff lookouts with breathtaking vistas of the Three Sisters, Orphan Rock, Ruined Castle and Mount Solitary. These monolithic formations framed by the far-famed green and blue and yellow sandstone canyons of the Jamison Valley. Wattle and Waratah, Baronias and Christmas Bells also flanked walking tracks to nearby Blue Mountain sites, places with impossibly romantic names like Weeping Rock and Bridal Veil Falls strike out in any direction. On foot with a walking stick or in a horse sulky or in one of those 22-seater open touring cars and you'd have your senses flooded with beauty and when the day's hiking and driving and caving and swimming was done the fun had only just begun katoomba offered confectionery and souvenir stores two picture shows playing the latest flicks a skating rink and plenty of places to eat and drink that included the newly opened paragon cafe At the peak of the tourist season, the town's population reached 10,000. Most visitors stayed at one of the 60 guest or boarding houses. These offered good beds, good meals, and good times. Mod cons as well, such as electricity, phone connections, and hot and cold baths. They also offered a convivial community atmosphere, with group activities such as billiards, tennis, darts, cards, and piano sing-alongs. Tariffs were modest six shillings a day, or 35 shillings a week, at a time when the basic wage for a labourer was nine shillings a day. For some people, it was probably cheaper to be on holiday. The biggest guest houses could accommodate two or three hundred people. Among the most beautiful were the Cecil and the Eldon, the Royal Palace, the Palais Royal, and San Susi. But the California stood out, It stood out because it was the largest weatherboard building in the southern hemisphere and it stood out because those weatherboards were hewn from california redwood hence the name but the california didn't just stand out it stood above it had been built around 1908 on an upper ridge that commanded unobstructed panoramic views of the jamison valley on a clear day you could see 60 miles to the distant southern highlands The California's proprietors were husband and wife team Arthur and Florence Anderson. They were partners in marriage and in business. The Andersons would put on clever fancy dress New Year's Eve parties and hold events to raise comfort funds for the boys on the front. Indeed, the California's finest moment had come during a recent historic and patriotic event. In early November 1915, when the 200 Gilgandra Cooees had marched into Katoomba, the town being a major stop on their recruiting march to Sydney, some 2,000 locals and tourists had turned out in a mile-long procession to meet them. But it had been the hosts of the California who'd had the honour of entertaining these brave men and lads at a luncheon. Many of these Cooees were, of course, still fighting on the Western Front, while others, sadly, had fallen on those foreign fields. By the end of March 1917, in Katoomba, as all around Australia, there was real hope that the end of the war might be in sight, that the stalemate might be over, with the United States about to take up arms on the side of the Allies. Such a shift, coming at a time when Russia was also in turmoil, was no doubt the subject of guest conversation in the lounge rooms of the California. So who were some of the people then staying at this lofty mountain resort? Two of them really stood out. At this time, just as mustachioed Hercule Poirot was yet to be revealed to the world by Agatha Christie, so too the copper-crowned ginger meigs hadn't yet been drawn into existence by Australian cartoonist Jimmy Banks. But you might have been forgiven for thinking that two of the California's guests were prototypes for the character. Herbert Shaw, who went by his middle name of Keith, had a mop of curly red hair. He had blue eyes set in a pale and freckled face, and he was slight at 125 pounds and small at 5 feet 4 inches. Even though he was 19, he looked years younger. Almost effeminate in appearance. That was how Keith was described by one newspaper. In a nation that had recently converted to worshipping Anzac gods, those bronze diggers of the Dardanelles and the Somme, being Keith Shaw, being white and weedy, girly and ginger, just can't have been easy. But at least he didn't have to go it alone. That was because there were two of him, or at least the next best thing in his twin Lionel, who was also staying at the California. Keith and Lionel weren't identical, but they might as well have been. They looked alike, they acted alike. So, Katoomba's townsfolk and tourists would have been doing double takes at the double image promenading along Main Street. By the end of March, the Shaw brothers had enjoyed plenty of chances to see and be seen because they'd been holidaying in Katoomba for weeks. Keith had recently left his job as a clerk with a city legal firm. Lionel was still working as a clerk, but appeared to have taken long holidays. Initially, they hadn't departed Sydney together. Lionel had been the one to come to Katoomba and take a veranda room at the California on the 24th of February. Meanwhile, Keith had gone to Bundanoon in the Southern Highlands. But when he sent a letter to his brother, it was to say that he was lonely at night. So Lionel went and picked up Keith and brought him back to the California. From the 13th of March, the brothers had slept in single beds in that veranda room. They had plenty of money, they were having a good time, and the tariff was so reasonable, there was no need to hurry home. When you stayed at the California for weeks on end, you got to know guests from different places and different walks of life. Keith and Lionel's veranda room adjoined and shared a window, with a room occupied by Mrs. Sybil Alexander and her two daughters. She and her girls had been up from Coogee since January. Mrs. Alexander was a widow. Her elderly husband, George, had died in 1912. She was 48 years old, the same age as Keith and Lionel's mother, and she was friendly with the lads. She thought they were well-behaved and well-mannered boys, and she liked that they were nice to her daughters. The room on the other side of the shores was occupied by a man named George King. He was a newcomer, having only arrived at the California on Friday the 30th of March. Unlike the Shores and Mrs. Anderson, he was just staying for the weekend. George King was divorced, aged 44, and an impressive fellow. He was a man on the move, a man of means, a man who was going to make money. A native of Victoria, Mr. King was a stylish chap who wore a diamond ring on his little finger. Until six months ago, he'd managed a millinery and fancy goods warehouse in Flinders Street in the heart of Melbourne but Mr. King had resigned that position to come to Sydney and set up his own business manufacturing hats for ladies. The room on the other side of Mrs. Alexander was occupied by a man named William Hollingworth. He was 30, married, father to a young son, and on a visit from Brisbane, where he was a clerk in the lands department. Mr. Hollingworth was good at his job, and if he should so desire it, it looked like he'd have a good future with the Queensland Public Service. The future looked bright too for Penryn Hugh Robbins, who had a room nearby. P.H. Robbins was 31 years old and a qualified accountant who was working as an audit clerk for the Sydney Morning Herald. He had a good head for numbers and for management. With hard work and if the gods smiled, P.H. Robbins might also make something of himself. These California guests were a friendly bunch, and Keith and Lionel were particularly popular. The brothers were also a hit when they were out and about in Katoomba. Of course, it didn't hurt that Keith and Lionel came from money as the sons of a wealthy squatting family. But while it might seem like they were dandies who'd grown on daddy's money, the shore lads also knew that they had to take care of themselves. That was why they'd both brought their revolvers with them on this holiday. After all, while Katoomba might be known for its life-giving qualities, you could never be too careful. On Saturday night, the 31st of March, a little band of California guests, including Keith and Lionel, Mrs. Alexander and Mr. King, went to the pictures. The double feature at the King's Theatre, right opposite the railway station, was a good one that night. The main movie was the romantic comedy The Heiress at Coffee Dance, starring Bessie Love. But there were also topical thrills to be had in the German spy drama On Dangerous Ground. Everyone had a fine time that night. And the same went the next day, Sunday the 1st of April, when the little clatch of California guests spent the day visiting the bars, Lura and Katoomba Falls and other sites. That evening, George King went out with some pals. Keith Shaw took himself off for a walk. Brother Lionel went to church. And Mrs. Alexander and her daughters passed the hours quietly at the California. Later, it was all bonhomie at the boarding house, guests saying their goodnights around 11 o'clock. While her daughters slept, widow Sybil Alexander had a fitful time because there was light from the Shaw brothers' room spilling through the shared window. But she eventually dozed off. Around 3.15am, Lands Department Clerk William Hollingworth was woken by a sudden noise. From a nearby room, a voice called out, Here, you get out of this! Then, several screams. And these were followed by stifled groans and a dull muffled thud that sounded like someone thumping a pillow. It had to be a guest, suffering a nightmare. Mr. Hollingworth was fully awake now. He heard footsteps outside in the corridor. Mr. Hollingworth jumped out of bed, threw open his door, and called, What's your game? Who's making that noise? But there was no one there. All he heard was the sound of a key quietly turning in a lock, but Mr. Hollingworth couldn't tell from which room the noise came. Ruffled, he went back to bed and tried to go back to sleep. Meanwhile, Mrs. Alexander, seemingly woken by the screams, First consciously heard what sounded like a bed moving it was so close she thought that one of her daughters might have fallen out of their bed mrs alexander got up and then she heard a thud it was like someone had landed on the ground outside looking through her window she saw blankets hanging from mr king's window next door there was someone outside in the darkness she could hear them running away Mrs. Alexander called to Lionel, and she told him what she'd heard and seen. "'What's happened?' she asked. Lionel, who was fully dressed despite the hour, said he didn't rightly know. But the lad admitted, "'I'm frightened.' "'So am I,' Mrs. Alexander said. Lionel asked if she'd like him to come and sit with her. She said that wasn't necessary. Looking through the window at Lionel, Mrs. Alexander saw a shadow moving in the corner of the boy's room. "'Quickly, Lionel,' she said. "'There's someone behind you.' Lionel said it was Keith. His brother had just come back into their room. Mrs. Alexander asked Keith where he'd been. She could see he was fully dressed too, and his bed hadn't been slept in. "'Echo point,' he told her. "'Out for a walk.' By now, Mrs. Alexander just wanted to go back to sleep. Keith and Lionel should do the same. She said, "'Go to bed, boys.' We shall not hear anything more. The California returned to silence. But Mrs. Alexander was too nervous to go back to sleep. She could hear movements from Keith and Lionel's room. When Mrs. Alexander got up a couple of hours later, she saw Lionel. He said he hadn't slept because he'd had the horrors. Me too, she said proprietor Arthur Anderson had not heard the screams or anything else. His quarters were 50 feet away from the room and on a different floor in a different wing. Nevertheless, Mr. Anderson was up not long afterwards. He had to wake up guests so they had plenty of time to leave for the Janolan Caves tour that morning. One of these was William Hollingworth. At 5.30 when Mr. Anderson reached that part of the California, Mrs. Alexander was up, and she told him what she'd seen and heard overnight. She feared that something terrible had happened. Mr. Hollingworth was also awake. He said he'd heard screams, but thought someone was having a nightmare. Mr. Anderson knocked on the door to Mr. King's room. No response. He called for Mr. King. Nothing. He tried the door. It was locked from the inside. Mr. Anderson went down to the backyard. Looking up, he saw the open window with the blankets hanging down. Blood on the blankets, blood on the wall. Mr. Anderson had to dread what he was going to find as he fetched a ladder. But reaching the window, what he saw was a horror worse than anything he might have expected. Mr. King's room was splashed with blood and gore up the walls, across the ceiling, drenching the bed where someone lay covered with a red-soaked blanket. Mr. Anderson called out, but the figure didn't reply and didn't stir. Drawing up his courage, Mr. Anderson climbed into the ransacked room. Beneath the blanket, George King's face was smashed and his head was battered. Brain matter protruded from numerous skull-fracturing injuries. Incredibly, He was still breathing and his heart was still beating. Biologically, Mr. King was still alive. For now, but not for long. There was no way anyone could survive such injuries. Mr. Anderson unlocked the door and phoned the Katoomba police and the government medical officer. The police station wasn't far away and they'd be on the scene soon. Everyone awake in this part of the California knew what had happened and was on edge. Mr. Anderson saw Keith and Lionel Shaw on the veranda. Despite the hour and the commotion, both lads were fully dressed. Mr. Anderson had nothing but the highest regard for these boys. They didn't drink or creep around at night like some young men, and they were well-behaved and unfailingly polite. But now something seemed wrong with Keith. He appeared nervous. Mr. Anderson asked him if he'd heard any noises and if he knew what had happened. The lad answered, I know nothing. Mr. Anderson replied, That's funny. Everybody else does. You have been up all night. Your eyes are bloodshot. Keith replied, You are right. I'm afraid I know a good deal about it. Keith then said he felt like going for a walk. Mr. Anderson replied, Don't leave the house. I've rung up the authorities. But when Katoomba's ranking policeman, Sergeant Archibald Kidd, arrived with two fellow officers, Keith Shaw was nowhere to be found. He'd slipped away just minutes before they'd turned up. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, Dr. Allen, the government medical officer, examined George King. The medico confirmed what had been immediately clear to Mr. Anderson. As the Katoomba-based Blue Mountain Echo newspaper would put it, The doctor saw from the first the case was hopeless, any one of the foul blows being sufficient to cause death. It was only a strong heart slowly pulsating to its end. Dr. Allen arranged for George King to be taken to the Abbotsford Private Hospital in Katoomba. There was nothing to do for the man but make him comfortable and send for his people. George Henry King had been born in a house called El Dorado in St. Kilda in 1873. His father had died when he was young. George had married in 1896 and soon afterwards he'd gone to Western Australia promising to remit money to his young wife before sending for her. But he didn't do these things. She divorced George in 1901 for desertion. Their story set out in her immaculately handwritten petitions, which I found at Ancestry.com.au. George didn't remarry, and his mother died in 1903. But his brother, John King, lived in Melbourne. When he was told what had happened, he left immediately to be at George's side. Whether he'd reached Katoomba before his brother died remained to be seen. The Katoomba cops were on the case that morning, but even the Keystone cops could solve this one. Mr. Anderson and other guests told Sergeant Kidd what Keith Shaw had said and how he'd looked before he'd fled the California. A search of the Shaw brother's room turned up his blood-stained clothing. It was stashed in his brother Lionel's luggage. The medical examiner had noted the ring mark on Mr. King's little finger, but his diamond ring was gone. And if he'd had any cash, it had also been taken from the room. Sergeant Kidd also didn't find the weapon that had been used in the attack. Mr. King had suffered at least 10 penetrating blows to his face and to his skull. The shape of the injuries made it likely that a hammer had been used. So the weapon had been brought to the room and it had been taken from it. While Keith Shaw was in the wind, Lionel Shaw had a lot of questions to answer. Likely because he knew and liked the lad, Mr. Anderson helped Sergeant Kidd conduct the first interview. Was it Keith? Mr. Anderson asked. Lionel replied, well, you know, Keith is my brother. Mr. Anderson, that means you are not likely to say anything against him? Lionel repeated, well, "'Keith is my brother, and that's all I'm going to say,' Mr. Anderson replied. "'Well, I think we understand the position now.' That was, at least, as far as anyone could understand what had happened. Until one hour ago, Mr. Anderson had believed the Shaw boys to be quiet and respectable. Now Keith had all but killed Mr. King, and Lionel was clearly covering for his brother, if, in fact, he hadn't also been involved in the attack.' Katoomba being as small as it was, and Keith having left the California so recently, the police quickly covered the town. Keith wasn't stalking the streets, and he hadn't been seen walking into the bush or off a cliff edge. They soon learned that Keith had hired Eric Cropley, Katoomba tour car operator, to drive him east. As it turned out, Keith and Lionel had been lying about coming from a rich squatting family. Their father, John Sidney Shaw, was born in 1853 and had worked as an accountant. He'd married their mother, Margaret MacLean of Hobart, in 1891. The couple had had two sons before Keith and Lionel were born in October 1897. The twins still lived with their parents in Cambridge Street in Paddington. Asked if Keith was heading there, Lionel said he wasn't because he'd know the police would be waiting for him. Nevertheless, Sergeant Kidd phoned Sydney headquarters. He advised them to watch the Shaw family house. Sergeant Kidd also contacted police and railway stations down the mountain, alerting them to the crime and giving them the suspect's description and the make and license number of Mr Cropley's car. In Katoomba, Lionel Shaw wasn't just playing it cool, he was coming off as callous. He remarked to the police that he hoped Keith would kill himself Rather than be taken alive. But his brother wouldn't be doing that with his revolver. Keith's gun had broken and it was found in the luggage he'd left in the room. Lionel explained that when Keith found out that his revolver was no good, he'd gone to the Katoomba department store, Mullaney's, and he'd bought himself a brand new hammer. Supposedly, this was for defence, but police presumed that this was the weapon that had been used in the attack and that Keith had hidden the hammer somewhere. Lionel handed his own revolver over to the police and he agreed to answer more questions. Lionel said that Keith had returned to their room around 4am, that was after the screams and disturbance from Mr King's room. Lionel said he'd had an idea that his brother had done something terrible. But he hadn't wanted to know, so he hadn't asked. Therefore, he couldn't tell the police anything more. In Sydney that morning, five detectives hid in the Shaw family house in Paddington. Keith's mother, Margaret, was also there. She must have been beside herself when detectives suddenly showed up that morning and told her why they were on her doorstep. The two senior officers were Detective Sergeant Joseph Devlin and Detective Constable PJ Downey. It's quite possible that Mrs. Shaw had heard their names before. That's because the murder case that had made them famous was very fresh in memory. In September the previous year, in the tiny town of Tottenham in the centre of New South Wales, Police Sergeant George Duncan had been assassinated, shot with a rifle as he sat at a typewriter in his one-man station. Detectives Devlin and Downey had been sent from Sydney to investigate. It had taken them four days through flood country to get to Tottenham. But they succeeded in their mission and their investigations led to the arrests of three men. One would be acquitted. But the other two, Frank Franz and Roland Kennedy, were convicted and the duo was hanged at Bathurst Jail four days before the Christmas just passed. These were the first executions in New South Wales in over four years. With George King dying in his hospital bed, Keith Shaw might follow those men to the gallows. At 11:45, the suspect came to the back fence of his family's property. Keith pulled himself up and over and went inside. The detectives were waiting. Keith was allowed to hug and kiss his mother. He said to her, "I'm so happy." Detective Downey said he was arresting Keith for the assault on Mr. King in Katoomba. Keith said he knew all about it. He said that he thought that Mr. King was dead. Keith gave the police no trouble, not that he exactly came quietly, in the sense that he talked and he told them everything he'd done, told his story calmly, clearly and even cheerfully. The detectives took Keith to Sydney headquarters where he wrote a lengthy voluntary statement which he signed. He also drew a map. It showed where detectives could find the ring which he'd stashed near the California's front gate. It also showed where he'd hidden the hammer he'd used to attack Mr. King and the victim's money case from which he'd stolen three pounds. These items were in bushes at the nearby Sans Souci guest house. At this time, Keith was examined by the government medical officer, Dr. Arthur Aubrey Palmer, and he'd say that the lad had appeared to be rational. The police took Keith to Central Station for a train back to the scene of the crime. But word travelled far faster than the steam locomotive. When the detectives and their suspect reached Katoomba, hundreds of people were crowding around the railway station. One flapper loudly called out that she was sure Keith was innocent. Keith certainly wasn't claiming that. Quite the opposite. He'd already spilled everything. Keith was put into the Katoomba lockup and the detectives went to the San Susi guest house. There, right where it said on the map, they found the bloody hammer and the empty money case. Next, they went to the California. But when they lifted the tuft of earth by the gate where Keith had said he'd hidden the diamond ring, they didn't find anything. Meanwhile, Lionel Shaw seemed to be taking callousness to new heights by making the most of the day, as if this was just another day of his holiday. Going into Katoomba, he spent the afternoon in saloons playing billiards. And that evening, he took a young woman as his date to another picture show at the King's Theatre. Lionel's presence there caused a sensation. Everyone knew who this red-haired youth was and what his doppelganger brother had admitted to doing. Many believed Lionel Shaw was also a killer, and he was free and in their midst. This was Lionel's first experience with people looking at him like he was a murderer. But it wouldn't be his last. As the Blue Mountain Echo reported, hundreds of townsfolk and tourists went out of their way to get a look at him. Quote, But he never turned a hair under the inspection. Lionel was cool. Cool even when Detective Devlin did more than just look at him. He found Lionel at the picture show and took him aside for questioning. Did he know anything about the assault? Lionel said he didn't, nor did he know where the ring was. Lionel was cautioned, but he agreed to make a statement. In it, Lionel said he'd been on holidays for the past two months and he'd brought his brother up from Bundanoon to Katoomba three weeks ago. Lionel said that a couple of nights back, Keith had told him he'd been in Mr King's room and was drinking whiskey. His brother had said, Mr King wears a beautiful ring. It is worth about 30 pounds. Then, last night, Lionel had seen his brother at the California tea table at 6pm. Lionel had gone to church at 7.30, returned to the guest house at 9.30 and remained in the sitting room until 11 before retiring. He told Detective Devlin, I did not go to sleep. I was worrying as to where my brother had gone to. Lionel said he'd heard screams from Mr. King's room. He claimed, though, the disturbance had been around midnight. In any event, He hadn't thought that Mr. King was having a nightmare, saying, I shuddered. The screams appeared to be that of a person in pain. Lionel said he'd heard Mr. Hollingworth shout out, and then Mrs. Alexander had tapped on the window, separating their rooms. Lionel told the detective she said, There has been someone getting out of the next room window, and he has run away. I feel frightened. Lionel said he'd offered to sit with her. She'd said no. Instead, she'd asked, Where is Keith? and that was just as Keith walked in and claimed he'd been at Echo Point. Lionel said that he and his brother had then gone to sleep. When he awoke, Keith was awake and shivering. Lionel said, I guess that he'd done something wrong. Keith had confirmed his fears when he said, I got his ring. Keith had told Lionel he'd hidden it by the front gate. Keith had then taken five half-sovereigns that Lionel had left on the dressing table and said, I'll go to Sydney by car. Lionel claimed he'd not asked his brother what he'd done because he knew he'd done something wrong. At around midday, Lionel said, he'd gone to find the ring, but it wasn't there. Detective Devlin went back to Keith Shaw about this. The ring was not where he'd said he'd hidden it. Keith replied he was telling the truth, so Lionel or someone else must have taken it. Detective Devlin's gut would have told him that Keith was telling the truth. After all, he'd confessed to the killing. He'd been honest about the hammer and the money case, and he'd admitted that the bloody clothes found in his room belonged to him. The police had all the evidence they needed. So why lie about this? On Tuesday morning, Detective Devlin went back to Lionel. He said he didn't believe him about the ring based on what Keith had said. Lionel then made another statement. In this one, he admitted that he'd given his brother money to make his escape, and he fessed up to having found the ring and to have hidden it. Lionel claimed he'd taken it because he intended to use it to pay Mr. Anderson for what Keith still owed at the California. Lionel then took the detectives to the Paragon Cafe. Upstairs, from behind a painting, he pulled a cigarette box. Mr. King's ring was inside a box, of King's brand smokes. Lionel was taken to Katoomba police station and he was charged with maintaining, aiding and abetting his brother. These charges reflected the police's belief that at the very least, he'd been an accessory before and after the fact. The past 24 hours had been horrifically eventful for Katoomba. Tuesday, the 3rd of April, 1917, ended on even more sinister notes. Reunited in the lock-up cells, Keith and Lionel Shaw chatted to each other as if they didn't have a care in the world. They showed off their fine voices as they harmonised late into the night, finishing with the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. Then, as the Blue Mountain Echo reported, The twins slept like tops, slumbering so soundly they'd have to be roused by the water to take their breakfast. The crime was ghastly enough, but how the shores were behaving made it so much more hideous. The indifference, the arrogance, the seeming delight at the senseless murder of another human being... And murder was what it was on Wednesday the 4th of April when Mr. King succumbed to his injuries in the Abbotsford Private Hospital. If there was any mercy, it was that he lingered long enough for his brother John to reach his deathbed in time to say goodbye. Not that George King likely knew anyone was there. In the wake of his death, Keith and Lionel were arraigned again and the charges against them were upgraded. Keith was charged with feloniously and maliciously murdering George King. Lionel was charged with having known of this murder and yet maintaining and assisting his brother. The inquest was opened in the Katoomba court on Friday the 6th and immediately adjourned to the mortuary. There, John King formally identified his brother's body, his ring and his money case. That done, the coroner adjourned the inquest for two weeks. Keith and Lionel Shaw would now spend a fortnight as guests of His Majesty in Parramatta Jail. That day, the 6th of April, the Blue Mountain Echoes headline read, Terrible tragedy by twins. City Commercial's career closed. Brutally battered by a boy. This local paper, whose pages were usually devoted to council doings and the social round, now had the most sensational story in its history. The Echo's account was packed with purple prose, but it also offered local insight into the lead up to the murder, such as this about the Shaw brothers. Quote, they were general favorites with all, especially the ladies. They were musically inclined, danced and played well, could sing a good song, one boy a soprano, the other an alto, wielded a fair cue on the billiard table, and could hold their own at the card table. The brothers spent their money freely and were generally regarded as good sports, lads worth cultivating. On the block, they were quite the lions of flapperdom, and it was a common sight to see the curly-head twins treating a party of the short-skirted fraternity to refreshments. How had two such young fellows wound up charged in a bloody murder? The Echo's colourful story was picked up elsewhere. The Cumberland Argus and Fruit Growers Advocate in Parramatta ran it under the headline, The Mountain Horror, Cold-Blooded Crime at Katoomba, Curly-Headed Twins and the Flappers. As shocking and puzzling as this murder case already was, when more was revealed, it would only get more mysterious and more sensational. Drug addiction and deranged love letters. Family members committed to lunatic asylums. A god who'd reincarnate a suicidal boy as a dog and a goddess who lived in a star and wielded an irresistible power over life and death. All of this lay ahead. Was Keith Shaw insane? Could any young man be in his right mind and commit this sort of crime? And what part had Lionel Shaw actually played? After all, this was a locked room mystery. The killer had escaped through the window. So, whose footsteps had been heard in the California hallway immediately after Mr. King was battered to death? I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Bloody Murder in the Blue Mountains. If you'd like to hear parts two and three right now, ad-free why not consider trying an Apple subscription to Forgotten Australia Plus for free for three days. Cancel before it expires and you won't pay a cent. Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening.